Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 120, The History of the Russian Orthodox Church, Part 1. Well, I hope you enjoyed that opening piece of music. It does come from a church choir in Kiev, and it's called O Theotokos and Virgin Rejoice. Now, telling the history of the Russian Orthodox Church, especially in its early days, is fraught with problems, mostly because of the lack of credible material. When the Mongols invaded in 1240, so much of the written history was lost due to the destruction of so many churches and actually whole cities. What we are left with is the primary chronicle and a history rewritten by church elders who very likely embellished things quite a bit. In this episode, we're going to cover the period from the supposed arrival of the Apostle Andrew in the lands now known as Russia to the time of troubles in the early 17th century. I'm going to be leaving off a little piece about the schism between the old believers, because I think that one actually needs an entire episode unto itself that I'll cover at a future date. Now, I'll be relying on my extensive library of Russian history, but leaning heavily on the work of one Daniel Shubin and his four-part series entitled A History of Russian Christianity. As Shubin puts it, the history of the Russian Orthodox Church is very tightly interwoven with the history of Russia itself. Even today, the Church plays a big role in the day-to-day -day lives of many Russians and plays an influence in politics as well. An example of this is a recent case of a group called Pussy Riot, a Russian band that protested with an act in Moscow's Cathedral of the Christ the Savior's Altar. They were protesting the re-election of Vladimir Putin, who had the backing of the Patriarch of the Church, Kirill I. Two of the members of the band were still serving a two-year sentence in prison, to this day, for the crime of hooliganism, which I have to admit is a very Russian crime. Kirill describes Putin and his era as a miracle of God, and was highly critical of those who opposed the Russian leader. Now, let's take a trip back to the supposed beginning of the Russian Orthodox Church with the mission of the Apostle Andrew. Andrew was the brother of Peter, the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. After the crucifixion of Jesus, his disciples began to preach in his name throughout the known world. According to legend, mainly from two sources, Eusebius and Nestor, Andrew came to the lands of Russia through Byzantium. Esubius said that Andrew preached to the Scythians, which he claimed came from a writer known as Origen, but no one has ever seen this telling of the travels of Andrew in his writings. Over the years, the tale from Esubius was expanded to have Andrew traveling up through the Ukraine and western Russia, preaching to the peoples who lived there. It is highly unlikely that an Aramaic-speaking Jewish apostle could have made this trip given the barbarian-like people who lived in the region at the time. Nestor recorded the journey of the Apostle Andrew in far greater detail as he claims that he followed a trade route from Constantinople up to Scandinavia to preach to the Varangians. He did this by crossing the Black Sea, landing at Kherson, and traveling up the Dnieper River to Lake Lagoda near present-day St. Petersburg. On his way, Andrew and his disciples stopped at the foot of some mountains and camped for the night. The next morning, he arose and he told his followers the following, quote, Do you see these mountains? 
Know that on these mountains the grace of God will shine. A great city will be built on them, and God will raise many churches upon it. The city that was built there many hundreds of years later was to be known as Kiev. Part of the story, written by St. Nestor the Chronicler, around the year 1110, stated that the Slavic people that Andrew came upon bathed themselves in steam saunas. But actually, that form of bathing only developed hundreds of years after Andrew's supposed visit. Also, there is no other chronicle, tale, or other writing to back up Nestor's claims. His work was likely commissioned by the Russian rulers Vesvolod I and Sviatopolk II. They had very important political reasons for why they would want to have the Apostle Andrew visiting their lands. Now, it's generally assumed that the Greeks had given the Russians their religion at the time of Vladimir the Great's conversion to Orthodoxy, following his grandmother Olga's visit to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople around the year 950. But there was a yearning to separate from the Greek influence, especially years later, when the Byzantine Empire began to fade from power. In the 1500s, a Catholic legate from Rome, Antonius Posavin, tried to convince Ivan IV to unite with the Pope from Rome. The Greeks were already beginning to have discussions, as was pointed out to the Tsar. Ivan replied, quote, We do not believe in the Greeks, but in Christ. We accepted the Christian faith at the very beginning of Christianity, when Andrew, brother of Peter the Apostle, entered these regions on his journey to Rome. In this manner did we in Moscow accept the Christian faith at the same time as you did in Italy, and from that time to the present we have observed it inviolate. Later, in the 1600s, when Arsenius Sukhanov was sent to Greece by Tsar Alexei to review the differences in Greek versus Russian Orthodox churches, there were discussions on the differences between the two and the Greeks claimed that they had doctrinal supremacy, as they gave the Russians their religion. To which Sukhanov replied, quote, In vain do you boast that we accepted from you the baptism. We accepted baptism from Apostle Andrew when he, after the ascension of the Lord, arrived in Byzantium, and from there traveled across the Black Sea to the Dnieper River, and the Dnieper up to Kiev, and then from Kiev even to the great Novgorod. While journeying, he disseminated his teaching regarding the faith of Christ, and some he baptized. Just as you accepted the faith from Apostle Andrew, so did we. As you can see, politically, it is important to the Russian Orthodox Church that Andrew came to their country, which allowed them to eventually break away from the Greeks in 1448, five years before the fall of Constantinople. In that year, Metropolitan Jonas was elected by the Council of Russian Bishops to become the Metropolitan of Moscow and all Russia. He was the first Metropolitan to be independent of the Greek Church. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Russian and Greek Church, a Metropolitan is like a bishop, but they are men who chair over a synod of bishops. Now, for many years, the Metropolitan of Kiev and later Moscow would be the head of the Russian Orthodox Church until the creation of the Patriarchate of Moscow in 1589. 
the first Russian patriarch, and this is higher up above the metropolitan. And by the way, you can have many metropolitans, but only one patriarch. Now, the first Russian patriarch was Job, and there would be a patriarch ruling over the church until Peter the Great abolished the position in 1721. But it really ended with the death of Patriarch Adrian in 1700. In October of 1917, the Patriarchate came back with the appointment of Patriarch Tikhon, and he was at that time the Metropolitan of Moscow. But really, that position became kind of moot with the onset of Soviet rule. The first real conversions to Orthodoxy started around the years 860 to 866. Trade between Kiev and Constantinople exposed the people to the Greek Church. By 862, a Greek Orthodox bishop was installed in Kiev where a church was built. But the hold of the church was kind of tenuous, as after the death of Askolt and Deer by the hands of Oleg in 882, Christianity went underground until 945. His son Igor married Olga, who, upon Igor's death at the hands of the Drevlins, became the regent for her five-year-old son Sviatoslav. Becoming interested in the faith, she made a trek down to Constantinople to become baptized. As you may or may not remember from episode one, she was made to wait a long time, but finally was seen and baptized by the Greek patriarch, with the emperor of the Byzantine Empire serving as her godfather. After her baptism, Patriarch Theophylactus told her, quote, Blessed are you among Russian women, because you have loved the light and abandoned the darkness. The sons of Russia will not cease to bless you for generations and generations, and unto the last of your descendants. Over 100 Russians who traveled with her were also baptized that day. The patriarch gave her a cross to bring back to Kiev with the inscription, Renovate the land of Russia, bringing it to God with the same holy baptism that Olga, the faithful princess, accepted. The cross was placed into a church that Olga had erected when she returned, but it was lost when the Mongols ravaged the city in 1240. Now, even though Olga was the first Russian head of state to convert to Orthodoxy, her son, Sviatopolk, did not take to the religion, and he allowed pagans to continue to worship their gods, like Perun, the god of thunder. It was her grandson, Vladimir Sviatoslavich, who was to bring the common people of Russia into the Orthodox fold. As I recounted in episode 2, Vladimir supposedly sent out envoys to discover what religion his people were to follow. When they returned from the many lands, they lauded the Greek Orthodox religion, partly because of the incredible edifice known as the Church of St. Sophia or the Hagia Sophia. As the emissaries put it, quote, We went to the Greeks, and they led us to the place where they served their God. And we did not know if we were in heaven or earth, because on earth it is impossible to view such scenery and such beauty. We are unable to describe it to you, but only know this, that their God resides with people, and that their liturgy transcends the liturgy of all the other countries. We cannot forget such beauty, just as any person, when he has tasted something so sweet, afterward 
He does not want what is bitter. So we, ourselves, do not want to go on serving our pagan gods. Now, is this the real story behind the conversion of Vladimir? Unlikely, as there were any number of inconsistencies, especially the discussion that they had of the differences and split between the Catholic and Greek Orthodox Church, which did not happen until 1054, some 66 years after Vladimir's conversion. According to the historian Golubinsky, it is likely that Vladimir just accepted Christianity because of both his grandmother's influence and the Christians already living in the city. Another big reason, though, was to gain a powerful ally in the Byzantine Empire. So he married the sister of Emperor Basil II, Anna. Whatever the reason for his conversion, he had his people convert. And this was the beginning of the Russian Orthodox Church's hold on the people of Russia. Over the coming years, the ruler in Kiev sent out representatives of the church to communities like the town of Rostov. It was not easy to convert the people as they still believed in their pagan gods and were quite resistant to accepting Christianity. Many a priest was driven away and some lost their lives trying to preach to the barbarians. And this is where many of the early saints come from. In Rostov, a number of priests and preachers were either expelled or killed in protest of their mission of conversion. Another major problem with the early church was the appointment of Greek metropolitans of truly questionable quality. When you think about it, why would anyone want to go up north to a less than civilized community when you could reside in the greatest city in the world, Constantinople, go to one of the most beautiful churches in the world, the Hagia Sophia? Out of the first 24 metropolitans before the Mongol invasion of 1240, only two were Russians. Ilarion from 1051 to 1055, and Clement from 1147 to 1154. Ilarion was installed by Grand Prince Yaroslav and Clement by Grand Prince Yasoslav, both very powerful figures in early Russia. Now, what's interesting is the appointment of Greek metropolitans was actually against canonical law. According to Greek Orthodox rules, the men should have been local and not foreign. It is likely that the Russians really didn't know about this rule, otherwise they would have very, very likely chosen their own people. Now, monasteries began to crop up around Russia during the Kievan time. Usually they were the work of one individual who had believed that they had a calling from God. The life in the early monasteries was a harsh one. But that is what they wanted. As Daniel Shubin puts it in his book, A History of Russian Christianity, Part 1, quote, Living for God became the mortification of the flesh by means of fasting and physical deprivation and the perfection of the spirit through mental and oral prayer. As a custom, those men who became tonsured as a monk or women who took the veil to become a nun changed their name as they left the known world behind them. The names were chosen from the list of saints or other holy people. The more popular the saint, the more people who named themselves after them. As important as the Greeks were to Russian Orthodoxy, the Bulgarians proved to be equally crucial in developing a Russian style of Christianity. 
The Bulgarians were often the priests who baptized communities in Russia, as they oftentimes spoke the local Slavonic language as well as Greek. Vladimir the Great favored the Bulgarians as he was quite suspicious of the Greeks and their influence. Unfortunately for the Bulgarians, they were conquered by the Byzantines in 1014, and thereafter their influence waned. The churches began to grow and gather large chunks of land and wealth over the years. They would eventually become the second wealthiest institution next to the state. A very sad side effect, though, was all this wealth and power came corruption and an arrogance that put off many Russian people. A very tight relationship between the church and state ensued. The state provided financial support, while the church provided moral and ethical support. This grew over the years until the time of Peter the Great. In 1223, though, the world would change Russia forever. The Mongol horde, led by Genghis Khan, entered their lands and destroyed an old enemy of Russia, the Polditsi. They traveled northwest and crushed everyone in their path. Then, only 50 miles away from Kiev, they stopped and turned around. The Russian princes believed that they had the backing of God and that their army scared the Mongols into retreating. Nothing could have been further from the truth. In 1236, more than 300,000 Mongols returned, led by Batu Khan, the grandson of Genghis Khan. They crushed the Bulgars and began to destroy every city in their wake. Ryazin, Kolmana, Rostov, Suzdal, and Moscow fell to the Mongols. They headed towards Novgorod, but were turned back by the marshes and swamps surrounding the city. Because of this, they turned southward and headed for Kiev. On December 6, 1240, the city surrendered and was utterly destroyed. Everyone the Mongols could find was slaughtered, including priests and nuns. The churches and the monasteries of the city were leveled and burned to the ground. The wealth of the Orthodox Church was plundered and sent back to the capital of the Horde, Sarai. Kiev was no longer a viable place for people to live, and it would not rise again until 300 years had passed when it came under the protection of Lithuania and Poland. Its reign as the center of Russian Orthodoxy was over. While the Mongols had devastated the land, they knew that killing everyone was going to be bad for business. They wanted the inhabitants that were still alive to pay tribute. They also were very tolerant of local religious beliefs, but the Khan had the final say in all appointments of prelates and especially the Metropolitan of the Church. The Greeks, who were fearful of a Mongol invasion, had no one who was willing to go to Russia to serve as a Metropolitan, so a Russian, Kirill III, became the head of the Church. Kirill made a very important decision to abandon Kiev and move the seat of the Church first to Chernigov, then to Ryazan, and finally to Vladimir. Over the next 30 years, he worked hard to restore the churches and monasteries that had been destroyed by the Mongols. Kirill also used the Mongol devastation to the church's advantage. He preached that the calamity that had befallen the Russian people was a lesson from God to return to a more moral and righteous life. He reformed the church and put down laws to prevent the avarice and the corruption that was an everyday occurrence in the Kievan era. 
Gradually, the Russian Orthodox Church recovered from the Mongol invasion and settled into a period of growth. To escape the reach of the Mongols, many fled deeper and deeper into the north and eastern parts of Russia. This was a time when Russian people began to head to unknown areas with incredibly harsh climates to avoid being captured by raiding Mongols who sold many of the captured Russians into slavery. In this way, the Mongol invasion led to the incredible expansion of Russia. By running away from their oppressors, the people went to places no thinking person would ever go to. One of the most influential men in the spread of the monasteries and the monastic life was St. Sergius of Radnes. Born in 1314, he was the spiritual leader and leading monastic reformer of medieval Russia. Metropolitan Alexei, one of the longest serving metropolitans of the time, wanted Sergius to replace him on his death, but the soft-spoken monk refused, preferring his simpler life of prayer and preaching. During this time period, Moscow became the seat of the Russian Orthodox Church. Fierce rivalry amongst the many great cities of Russia for the position of the center of the church was fought. Eventually, through clever manipulation of the Khan and Sarai, he gave them the position as first among all of the cities under the Horde's thumb. Ivan I solidified this position, which was to last until the time of Peter the Great. When Ivan III took over as Grand Prince of Moscow and Vladimir in 1462, until his death in 1505, the Russian Orthodox Church expanded greatly. Under his reign, the Russians ceased paying tribute to the Golden Horde. During his son Vasily III and grandson Ivan IV's reigns, the Church continued its expansion. It was the greatest century of expansion in the history of the Church. After the defeat of the Horde in Astrakhan in 1554 and the victory over Kazan, the Russian Orthodox Church began to construct monasteries and other churches in the south. By 1590, the end of the Muscovite period, the church had fully recovered from the Mongol invasion. But new threats from the west threatened the church, especially the blooming Protestant Reformation. But an even more sinister threat loomed after the death of Ivan IV's son, the feeble-minded Fyodor, and that was the time of troubles. Poland, a Catholic country, was looming on the doorstep of Russia, looking for a weakness to attack and take over. They had captured and held prisoner the Patriarch, which outraged the people. Numerous other countries were looking at Russia as ripe for the picking. The Pope wanted to extend his influence, which would have meant sending missionaries into the countryside. But a man named Kuzma Minin, along with the princes Trubetskoy and Pozarsky rallied the people under the banner of the Russian Orthodox Church. Minin sent an appeal to the people in the spring of 1612 where he blamed, quote, the devil for creating disunity amongst Orthodox Christians, seducing many to join corrupt and sinful company, and causing rogues of every rank to band together and to introduce internecine strife and bloodshed into Muscovy, so that son rose against father, father against son, and brother against brother. And there was much shedding of Christian blood. But now, gentlemen, we have exchanged messages with the entire land, vowed to God, and pledged our souls to stand firmly 
against the enemies and depredators of the Christian faith. We must choose a sovereign by common agreement, whomever God may grant us, lest the Muscovite state be utterly destroyed. When the call went out to select a new czar and leader of the Russian people in 1612, Pozarsky and Trubetskoy blocked each other and were fiercely opposed to the 16-year-old Michael Romanov's ascension to the throne. But the Romanovs were a very wealthy family with a great deal of influence amongst their fellow boyars. After spreading their wealth around, Mikhail Romanov was made czar. They entrenched the belief in the people that the selection was made through God's influence and that Michael had been delivered to them to rebuild the country after the devastation wrought by the time of troubles. This belief in their divine place as head of Russia was to be partly to blame for the recalcitrant behavior of Nicholas II in 1917 when faced with growing pressure to step down or at least accept a constitutional monarchy. Coming out of the time of troubles, a new era in the growth and expansion of the church was about to appear, and it's known as the Patriarchal Period. Next time, we will cover the years from 1590 to 1725, going through the beginning of the Romanov dynasty to the time when Peter the Great peeled back the power of the church and ended the patriarchal control by creating the Holy Synod. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Come on over to Facebook to enjoy our growing family of listeners where you can ask questions, leave comments, or make suggestions. You can also head on over to my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com where you can read more about Russian history and hopefully you can make a donation to keep the podcast going. But now, as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.